Well, again, good evening. So glad you guys have uh, decided to jump out in the warm, hot middle of your week. And um, actually, today wasn't bad, was it? It was, it was kind of 60, was it 60? Um, that's not bad, given what we're, what we're heading toward, is it? I'll take that any day here. Um, <clears throat> one real quick announcement before we jump into our teaching. This coming up weekend is our Missions Focus Weekend. And um, so I hope you'll be here either Saturday night, Sunday morning for our services. But And uh, Pastor Kerry will be announcing it on the weekend. Uh, Sunday night is our missions movie night. And if you look on the back of your bulletin, um, they're going to be in this room right here. We're going to be meeting in, in the South Auditorium and previewing the movie Sabrina. There's going to be a free dinner provided along with it. So those of you who um, consider yourself freeloaders, just come for the dinner. And, um, but you do need to register. So uh, there's a little <clears throat> uh, QR code there that you can click on that, register. So you just need to read. Once it's full, it's full. So I'm not sure how many seats they have in here. Donnelly, I don't know if you remember how many they said. I, I don't at all. Um, so anyway, I would encourage you, if you're interested in that, jump online, register, and it'll be just a really fun, enjoyable time. Uh, but the goal of these Mission Movie Nights is not just to have fun, but to really inform us of what is going on in God's bigger world and what he's doing as that relates to missions. So we are on, Pastor John, week six of our eight-week series, only two more weeks, going through the book of Revelation that uh, Pastor John has been kind enough to, to walk us through. And I know there are some study groups out there who are tracking along and having some great discussions. So Pastor John, absolutely, thank you so thank much you. again. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm going to start going a little off script because I don't know about you, but but I kind of started the day wanting to look and seek and and hear from the Lord. And I've been kind of wondering where his voice has been all day, looking for it, hearing a lot of other voices, a lot of other voices. And yet he says in his word, my sheep will know my voice. And when Cameron read Psalm 63, I heard the voice of the good shepherd saying, to my soul, preach this to your soul. Speak this back to me. So, and this is the ESV version of what he read in Psalm 63. So I have looked upon you in, your in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you the watch, in the watches of the night, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul needed to hear that. My soul needed to hear that, that those are words that God is worthy of. So with that, um, have you ever had a song like about the resurrection of Jesus that just hits you like it's for the first time? Have you ever had that, that experience? 
Like, it's the same reality, it's the same event, it's the same facts, but you're going, no, no, it, it was the notes, or it was, it was the angle at which I, I was able to see it. This time, it hit me different. Have you ever had that experience? That's revelation. That's what revelation is after. Let's let it keep hitting you. The goodness of God, the transcendence of God, the victorious nature of God, let it hit you in a new way, people of the seven churches. So with all the talk that we've had throughout this study about seeing things through Old Testament eyes, I wanted to remind you of a book recommendation that I drew heavily upon uh, to kind of understand and explore Revelation. It's by a guy named Tremper Longman called Revelation Through Old Testament Eyes. With this, with this study, you've heard me probably say that phrase over and over and over, that, that we want to see revelation not through our Western 21st century eyes primarily. We need to see it with Old Testament eyes, people that were immersed in visions and verses and his, history that, that maybe you and I aren't as much. So this week, uh, we're going to spend a little more time looking through Old Testament eyes. We've got two chapters this week, chapter 15 and chapter 16, and we're going to spend about as much time in the Old Testament as we are in Revelation. Um, I'm also probably going to borrow a little time from next week because we're going to need it next week as we dive into eschatology and the millennium and all kinds of pieces. So I know that's not how time works that you can borrow it, but daylight savings maybe helps us out there. I don't know. Think of it how you want. But now that the choice for the seven churches is clear, amidst the battle, amidst what we've encountered, the opposing forces of God, now that the choice for the seven churches is clear, give in to the lure and the deception of the enemy or see things from God's perspective with the army of the Lamb. Now that that choice is clear, now John replays a final cycle of seven judgments poured out in bowls of wrath. From the Lamb's scroll, many among the nations do repent. And right there, I don't ever want us to take realities like that and just say that's good. I want us to acknowledge that when someone moves from dry bones to being alive, from death to life, from an outsider to welcomed in in the family, whenever anybody does that, may we never get tired of celebrating that and lifting that up and say, praise God, because that was once me. But alas, just like Pharaoh, there are many that persist with hard hearts, Chapter 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. With these plagues, with this wrath being poured out, the wrath of God is finished forever. 
if the doctrine's related to God's judgment and his wrath being poured out upon sinners, unrepentant souls, doesn't drive us deeper into sorrow and desperation, something's broken in us. If we read something like the wrath of God being poured out and it excites us and it makes us smile, something in our soul is a little bit off. This should drive us deeper not into sorrow or despair, but into desperation. God, reach souls. This is hard stuff when we're talking about the wrath of God being poured out. People have even tried to eliminate these doctrines. Either saying things like love wins and everyone goes to heaven, every soul gets to heaven on the one end, or by removing the eternal separation from God entirely on the other end, just opting out, ceasing to exist eternally. And I totally get it. I totally get that if you and I were to come up with, where does this leave people in the scope of all of eternity? If we were to come up with a solution, we might try to come up with something that's a little easier for us to swallow, something that's a little easier for us to take. But we are not God. We do not have the right to create our own understanding of the God that I want to believe in would eternally operate like this. That's not our job. We can't do that. We have to look at scripture. We have to look at Jesus. We have to look at what he says first. Revelation gives us at least a sense of how God feels about people's absolute need to repent and accept his grace. It's an absolute need. And while we can't possibly encompass all that these beliefs entail, there are many aspects of God that he doesn't intend on us to know. What we can know, what we should know, is that while you and I still have breath, We still have a job to do. Explore his riches, endure in this world, and proclaim his testimony to souls that need to hear it, that need to respond to salvation in Christ alone. And there will come a time when, with these judgments, the wrath of God is poured out once and for all. Even so, amen. Even so, amen. That's at least where Revelation seems to be directing the perspective of the church. So let's keep going. Verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. There's a lot. If you missed last week, please make sure to go back and and kind of explore what we talked about with harps and the number of its name and, and, and all that. But here we heard the song of Moses. Who is super familiar with that song? Raise your hand. Okay, let me let me let me try this. Amazing Grace. Who is super familiar with that song? Okay, we don't sing that every week in church, do we? Not, not every week, but 
quite a lot, right? The Song of Moses goes back to Exodus. If you have Bibles, actually, I'd love it if you'd flip that back there with me for a bit. Exodus chapter 15. It's the Song of Moses. As you're flipping there, I know it's kind of all the way at the other end of the Bible, so I'll give you a little uh, detour here. The Song of Moses is a song that Israelites would have sang every single week in synagogue, in the temple. You and I are very familiar with Amazing Grace. We don't sing it every week. Do you think if we're seeing the Bible through, or sorry, seeing Revelation through Old Testament eyes, how the original readers would have received it when they crossed over the song of Moses, they would have been more familiar with that title and what that song is than you and I are with Amazing Grace. All, all John, the author, had to say is, is they were singing the song of Moses, and all of a sudden they got all the verses. They got all of this. Then Moses, this is uh, Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And it, and it keeps, keeps going. It's, it's worth a, a read in its own right, Exodus 15. That's why I had you, you move there if you have your Bibles. I'd love for you to put a bookmark there and kind of explore it further as some extra homework. But I want you to understand this. Seeing through Old Testament eyes, the first century readers would have known all of this. They would have known the calls that immediately followed the, the victory of the Lord over Pharaoh and his armies. And how Moses and the people of God say, said, our God took out our enemy once and for all. Remember that the Lord is a God of war. Praise the Lord and hold fast amidst tribulation. See, back then, they would have known, looking back on, on slavery and oppression in Egypt, did God act in their timing in the way they wanted it to happen? No. No, they still questioned God. They still grumbled about God's timing. But at the end of the day, they sang this song, Exodus 15. The song of Moses is a call for the people to remember. Remember that God will always be proven faithful, not according to your timeline, not according to how you want it. But at the end of the day, he will always be proven victorious. Stay faithful to this. Or as we said at the very beginning, maybe let this hit you differently, people of the seven churches. With our heads still in this exodus mindset, uh, recall, many of us won't have too much trouble recalling the 10 devastating plagues over Egypt. And back in Revelation now, those 10 plagues serve as a marking point for the Jew that God was an active, victorious, just dispenser of judgment. Holding on to that Exodus backdrop, I want to go back to Revelation 
So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go back to Revelation 15 and 16. I want to do a little bit of a survey, an overview of these two chapters. I know we're kind of hopping back and forth, so don't get biblical motion sickness on me. Um, but like last week, we hear in Exodus, or sorry, Revelation 15, we hear about the celebration and the victory of the Lord first in the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb before the battle, before the judgment is poured out. This is that inverted sense of time that we keep coming back to in Revelation. Victory proclaimed and sung about first. Harp music, peace music, not, not battle cries, victory cries. Celebration before action. We are assured and certain of God's victory in the actions he's about to do, pouring out bowls of wrath. And you don't need to write these down. These are just kind of an overview. Bowl one that we see God pouring out or the angels pouring out in Revelation, harmful, painful sores. It's like the sixth plague back in Egypt. Bowls two and three, blood in the sea and rivers, and springs. Well, that's like the first plague of Egypt. Bowls four and five, scorching heat of the sun that is then followed by agonizing darkness. It's like the ninth plague in Egypt. And bowl six, this is, this is one of the most fascinating things to encounter here. Such a profound connection. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 says this. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 the sixth angel, these are bowls of God's wrath being poured out. Check out this superpower. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. As we're getting to the end of God pouring out his bowls of wrath, we see God removing restraints. Clearing the pathway, drying up rivers so that forces of the beast can freely assemble and attack the people of God. Maybe that's not your best battle plan, God. <laughs> Except, fascinatingly, this is just like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, ultimately giving him away to the eternal wayward condition of his choices and his heart and allowing Pharaoh to fully pursue the people of God in all of his hatred. So since I flipped back to Revelation a minute ago, I know you're not uh, back in Exodus, but I, I wanna do a, a quick reading back in Exodus of what had happened when, when God had allowed Pharaoh to pursue his own end. Chapter 14 of Exodus, verse Verses 27 and 28. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it, the dry ground. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Despite all the efforts of God to give Pharaoh and, and his army all kinds of warnings that they would relent and repent, 
Pharaoh was ultimately allowed to pursue the people of Israel only to his final judgment. One definitive day judgment comes for people that reject all other options outside of the grace of God or reject the grace of God given away to their own will. The enemy's destruction is ultimately self-destruction. Now back to Revelation, bowl seven, devastation and severity unlike anything since man was on the earth, as verse 18 tells us. Unprecedented to Old Testament, New Testament eyes or ears and to us. So with this Exodus theme overview, getting the real feel for the song of Moses, how, how a first century reader or listener would have received all of that, what kind of thoughts they would have been immersing themselves in. Now uh, zoom back in a bit to chapter 15 of Revelation, starting at, at verses 3 and 4. We see the song of the Lamb. We've, we've talked about, we've explored, well, what is the song of Moses that they sang? That's what we've explored. So now it's, what is the song of, of the Lamb? Phrases drawing from the Psalms and the prophets, furthering the praise for the mighty deliverance of the Lord and, and his just judgment poured out on enemies. And then smoke fills the temple, chapter 15, verse 8, as these bowls and these plagues are poured out, described throughout chapter 16. It says, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The smoke filling the temple. Like the Ark of the Covenant we briefly mentioned last week, symbolizes the Shekinah cloud or Shekinah glory that appeared in the tabernacle or the temple. Shekinah or Shekinah glory is a term or terms that actually appears outside of the Bible in rabbinic Jewish writings, encounters with experiences of a divine cloud representing the fullness and heavy volume richness of God. We see a, a divine cloud of the people going, uh, p- uh, going before the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. We see a smoke, a cloud above the ark. Leviticus 16, verse 2. And some, a cloud in the temple. Ezekiel 10. And even a smoke, a cloud present at the transfiguration. All of these things showing us this is where the unique, heavy, rich presence of God was present. This isn't like a scene from that old TV show Lost with a smoke monster moving around. All of this represents the exclusive concentration of God's presence. The smoke, the cloud is the fullness of God's presence demonstrating for us that God himself is not just participating or watching these bowls of wrath being poured out tragically over rebellion. God himself is the source, the originator 
of these bowls of wrath, these devastating judgments. Anyone have a problem with that? Even a little? (laughs) I do. The fullness of our God being poured out in judgment. That's a very real struggle. If we're honest, maybe even the word disturbing comes up a little bit. How God acts through, throughout history that we need to at least try to address. As you read your Bibles and you see the judgment and the wrath of God being poured out, we need to at least try to reconcile that, not solve it. I'm not saying this is a way that God is acting and we can fully solve it. We can trust it and we need to try to understand it and even struggle with this stuff. Struggling with things that sometimes people have have called divine violence. Heretical groups have actually been formed over a refusal to reconcile things like this. A second century man named Marcion utterly rejected the Old Testament on the grounds that the God of the Old Testament is a tyrant and is not to be trusted. And I'm not sure he'd be a fan of Revelation either. Marcion and his followers, they believed that the wrathful God of the Old Testament could not possibly be the all-loving, all-forgiving God of the New Testament. It's irreconcilable. And so what they did is they separated the two. They made sure that that Jesus is not possibly the son of the God of the Old Testament. He's the son of a new God, a better God, a kinder God that's more consistent with what I see here. And logic like that actually still is alive and well today, isn't it? People saying phrases that start like, I could never believe in a God that, that what? Wouldn't do things like you see fit? Any thoughts as we're trying to discern revelation on this cosmic big picture level, any thoughts or inklings of what that kind of logic sounds like? It sounds like the hissing of a serpent to me all the way back in Genesis. It's the beast-like deception hissing in the the ears and souls of people that is God really like that? If If he really acted like that, can he really be trusted? And you know what? If if that's what your Bibles say about him, I don't know that you can really understand or agree with that that God is worthy of your worship. See, bad theology like that is not just off base, not just something to be corrected like it's a textbook. It's lethal to our souls. Bad theology needs to be taken very seriously because it's deceptive. It's beast-like. Tony Evans recently quoted, God is who he is. He is not who you want him to be. Or Augustine, a little older than Tony Evans. He quoted, if you believe what you like in the gospel, 
and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. So if we can't skip it, just, just cut pages out of the Bible that we don't like, like Thomas Jefferson did, and we can't decide that we're going to come up with a whole new set of beliefs like Marcion and his followers did, then you and I have to work through it. We have to be willing to do what we said all the way back in week one, struggle with it, because you're not going to understand it better if you don't struggle with it a bit. In fact, that's why I applaud all of you for even trying to understand Revelation a little bit better. The hard things, like we said, I'm going to repeat it in week one, we won't understand it better if we don't struggle with it. First and foremost, we need to read and see all of God's actions. We're diving into this, this idea of divine violence, even though I don't necessarily like that term. We're, di we're diving into that idea a little bit. We need to see God's actions in the scope of the whole. We don't just take one chapter or one circumstance from the Bible and, and elevate it at the expense of all others. That's what the Pharisees did. They would take one thing, reject the heart, reject everything else that was going on, and make a case out of that one thing. And Jesus really got ticked off at that. Secondly, we need to try to understand how God always tries to engage in history in the context in which he finds people and nations. I'm going to say that one more time, a little more slowly. God always chooses to act in history in the context in which he finds people and nations. Meaning as people and nations ceaselessly and increasingly choose to resort to violence and oppression in their response to God's people and God's purpose for the world, then God has a choice right then and there right as the situation is. Not, not necessarily as a reset button. Let's go back to before you, you did all those things and made those choices or some idealistic choice in a vacuum. God has a very real choice in how to respond to people who have made their very real choices, the spaces in which they've put themselves. And God faithfully, with perfect measure of justice and grace, chooses to protect people and his purposes. The dehumanizing elements of the beast devolving into practices like child sacrifice or brutality or sexual rituals and so on would ceaselessly threaten to corrupt and torture and take over like a cancer. And a good God will not allow that to go unchecked. So God still strives to extend grace and patience, sometimes even shocking grace, allowing room for repentance, like we have seen in crazy examples throughout scripture of people that do not deserve the grace of God, but somehow get it. Why did God wait until that moment? I don't know, but his measure of patience and grace and justice is perfect. It's perfect. That's what Revelation shows us, that God 
allows a sense of time to pass and people to have real choices and come face to face with the calls and reality to repent, even mercifully poured out judgments, but, but restrained so that they might repent. And when it's all put together, he does act. And even if the enemy and the Marcians of the world would judge his timing, would call him suspect for either waiting too long or not waiting long enough to act, the choir of heaven sees the actions of God as perfect. And they sing their songs. Chapter 16, verse 5, they proclaim, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar. And according to, to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, that's the souls of those who had been slain for the word of the Lord, the martyrs, the special forces of the army of the Lamb. Pastor Brent and I were in a couple of meetings today where we encountered that, that these are not hypothetical souls. Some of these are the persecuted church, people we have relationships with, people we know. These are, these are souls, martyrs, proclaiming, celebrated in the front lines of the army of the Lamb, proclaiming things like, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The enemy... Many people around the world will, will call God suspect for his timing, but the choir of heaven and the martyrs say, just are your judgments. You're perfect in how you acted. And there's so much more to explore there in this concept. Like all of Revelation, we are just exploring it. We're not tackling it and wrestling it to the ground, but maybe we can see at least a little bit how God deserves to be worshiped and glorified even for his wrath even for his justice and judgment being poured out for those who eternally oppose God. So I wonder if you're still struggling with this a bit. <laughs> That's okay. Don't be afraid of that. God can take it. His word can take it. An exploration of, of what doesn't sit well with us is okay to continue to explore. Let this faithful reality hit differently people of the seven churches. So returning our focus on the pivotal sixth bowl, verses 12 through 16 in chapter 16, the dragon, Satan, and the beast, nations, they gather together at Armageddon. Dang it, I really wish the lights would dim down at that point again. Images don't, don't, never mind, time's passed. Uh, images drawn from the book of Ezekiel, and we'll get there, get there in a second. But before we take a look at Ezekiel, I want to kind of explain really briefly how we can understand this term, Armageddon. Armageddon is an indefinite place, possibly symbolic of a, of a battlefield or plain that was close in proximity to Jerusalem. Many people believe Megiddo is the place of Armageddon. And actually, if we can throw up a picture, when I was driving in, in Israel and, and you kind of understand that Megiddo in many minds is synonymous with, with Armageddon, I'll tell you, it's an eerie thought to go, if I exit right now, I'm headed to Armageddon. 
I'm just going to keep going on this highway. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of strange. But, but, but whether this valley of Armageddon is a literal geographical space where the enemy forces will, will gather together for a final battle, or whether Armageddon is representative of a final assembly of enemy forces. Either way is, is certainly possible. This is just a brief exploration of, of the role that Armageddon as a final gathering place plays. The locale, the exact location of Armageddon is not a main focus of Revelation. So we're not gonna get caught there even if it's a namesake for a great Bruce Willis movie. But we'll keep going. Okay, back to the Old Testament. Like I said, hope you're not getting motion sickness back and forth here. But, but, but because Revelation draws so heavily on the Old Testament, we need to have that overlay constant for us. In Ezekiel's time, the resistance came in the form of a leader named Gog, whose name pops up later in Revelation chapter 20. In the land of Magog. Now, if you want to uh, head back there at some point on your own and see what happens between God and Magog, it's Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Uh, spoiler alert, God wins. <laughs> but we're going to take a, a look at a couple of verses out of that. Like a broken record, Gog stands in the line of the Pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Neros opposing God and his people, an old pattern only to his own destruction. Gog devises an evil scheme to fall upon the quiet people living safely in the land. He recruits supporting forces of Persia and Cush and Put and Gomer and Bet-Torgama with all of their hordes. <laughs> Immaturity in me says those are kind of funny names with the exception of just remembering these are all people that stand in the line of resistors and opposers to God that all ultimately prove his, his faithfulness to ultimately put an end to opposers. Ezekiel 38, 16, God says, you will come against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land in the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 23, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And Ezekiel 39, verse 7, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Ezekiel's figure for, for violent, rebellious nations was Gog in the land of Magog. Daniel's was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. John's was Nero of Rome. If we were in Europe in the 1940s, it would be a man named Hitler. I can't, I can't shake with the violent destruction that we're seeing Hamas pull off in our world today, that that's not another opposition, violent in hatred, overcome beast-like violence still today. And Revelation tells us for every person that refuses total allegiance to these beast-like entities, 
these nations, the nations will desperately and fiercely fight you. We see it all across our world today, just like the people of the seven churches did. Unyielding allegiance or fierce repercussions. This is how the devil plays. This is the devil's end game, hell-bent destruction. And as we've said, ultimately it's self-destruction. Even amidst all of the violence and the destruction, these types of empires ultimately collapse on themselves. So as we said before in our brief overview of the seven bowls, in the sixth bowl, God decides to remove restraints. Chapter 16, verse 12 of Revelation. Remove restraints, dry up the rivers, let them come at the city gathering all of its forces together against the church, against Israel. And just like Pharaoh, the enemy gathers through delusions of victory to, dis- to assemble for their final downfall, the seventh bowl. The depiction of the day of the Lord in its finality, where God is victorious and evil is defeated among all the nations. And unlike the trumpet judgments that were poured out earlier, where we heard a third was being poured out, a third was being poured out, here with this seventh bowl, the destruction is total. Chapter 16, or yeah, chapter 16, beginning in verse 17 of Revelation. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because it was so severe. As we said before, this is no nail-biter of a battle. It's over before it ever began. It is done, God declared in his victory over rebellion. It is finished. Either we will have Jesus's cry upon the cross. It is finished. That cry over us for all of eternity and what the implications of that were, or we will have this cry of the pouring out of the seventh bowl of wrath. It is done over us for all of eternity. Let this faithful, repeated, eternal reality hit you differently, people of the seven churches. So now John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll, the course of human history. And before we're done this week, I want to go back to something. It's a word, it's a concept that that as I was reading through these two chapters just, just kept standing out to me. One word, just, 
are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And then, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The choir of heaven here is praising God for his judgment. And it makes me wonder, would would people trust anyone who definitively and eternally judges? We don't like judgment, do we? We have have phrases. Who are you to judge me? Why are you being so judgmental? Or, or, Or even the implications of that. I think I'm basically a good person. Enacting that judgment over our own souls. (laughs) Or even falling back to the phrase, only God can judge me. (laughs) I remember when the rapper Tupac chose to talk about this. Never thought you'd hear about Tupac in in Revelation, but that's that's what apocalyptic draws out. He he proclaimed, only God can judge me. It's It's this great statement of like, back off. Except probably neglecting that that he one day will. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. That's the verdict from our just judge. Would people trust anyone besides ourselves who judges like at the level of your heart and the level and the impact of eternity, would people trust anyone who judges? If the answer is yes, I will submit to an ultimate judge, then receive, not judgment, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus and entrust yourself to him. And if the answer is never, or I judge myself, or I'm just going to choose to give myself an opt-out option when it comes to eternity, then remain destined in death, an eternal condition with an eternal consequence. (laughs) I have loved ones here, guys. So do you. Revelation, along with the rest of Scripture, reveals to us that the ultimate point of God's judgment is imminent. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. No one can escape. No one is exempt. No one is worthy to judge themselves. Revelation 20 Next week, we're going to encounter the final judgment taking place before the great white throne. Amidst rebellion, God's victory can and must be sung about and celebrated. And in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, and also uh, as we talked about in chapter 15, 3 through 4, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. 
All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is worthy to be praised for his mercy, his perfection, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his justice. Yes, his wrath and his victory. In the midst of whatever we're facing and in the midst of whatever these people of these seven churches were facing, we need to see and remember that God is ultimately just and victorious. We need to hear the good shepherd's voice amidst all the other voices as an ultimate cry, an ultimate invitation, an ultimate offering of his love and that his people, his kingdom is victorious forever. Next week, we're going to explore the deep waters at the heart of eschatology, dealing with everything from the millennium to the rapture to the final judgment before the throne, at least to whatever extent we can try to explore those things. But for now, I want to just use some of our training, some of what we've talked about in seeing things through Revelation's eyes, seeing Revelation through Old Testament eyes, that there are the people, there are the ways of the world, the pharaohs, the gogs, the Nebuchadnezzars, and the Neros, and in our time. And even so, you and I can stand in awe, not, not just despite of what we're seeing, but especially with what we're seeing, even if we don't completely understand it, we can stand and praise God for his faithfulness. He is worthy, he is sure, he is good. Communion is just another way that we can remember that and stand alongside of others in the army of the lamb. So if, if you have communion elements, I invite you to take them out. If you don't have elements, they, they are there in the back. We'd love for you to, to run back there and grab them. We'd love for you to participate in that. Back at those tables or Pastor Brent can help you as well. But if you have elements while we're waiting for people to get those, can you please stand with me if you're able? Now, church, I invite you to listen to the voice of the shepherd. I invite you to let this hit you differently this time. Not because it's something that I say, but it's, it's some encounter with the resurrected, the death conquering army of the lamb that says all of that judgment that we deserve, all of that wrath being poured out, it is finished, Jesus proclaimed on the cross. Go back and read the, the crucifixion again tonight before you go to bed. Go back and see that that God made a way that you and I do not need to suffer that judgment. We take the body, the bread, and we remember Jesus that over my soul, you proclaimed on the cross, it is finished for you. Take the bread and remember and celebrate that. Like we talked about last week, blood will ultimately be spilled for sin. Is it ours or is it yours? For me, and for my friends, we take this cup and we remember and celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise you, God.
Help us go as your church with this message our world desperately needs to hear. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you back here next week as we dive deeper.